All right, everybody, this is our, one of our special Gen Con episodes. You are not going to get a, an individualized introduction for each of our Gen Con episodes, so this is the one that you'll hear over and over again. I am at Gen Con right now, uh, or was just at Gen Con, covering all kinds of things from Wizards of the Coast. I'm also going to be attending uh, the Kobold Press seminars, uh, going to some press events and more, possibly some interviews and that kind of stuff, so expect some more of that coming out, including this episode. And don't forget, these are relatively unedited. All I'm doing is slipping in the intro to the episode and the ad from our wonderful sponsor, Noble Night Games. Otherwise, it is pure, unadulterated Gen Con material. And speaking of unadulterated, that means we're not responsible for the content. Some of it may be risky. We're looking at you, Matt James. Uh, (laughs) We'll try to outline that in the show notes, so pay attention. And remember that large, sometimes loud convention rooms or exhibit halls or giant floors where there's a recording going on and a thousand people standing around, that will impact some of the audio quality. It may not be the best audio quality, but I guarantee you that the content will be the best content from Gen Con. And as we move into the the content that you're looking for... The, the thing that you're tuning in for here, we should mention, again, our sponsor is Noble Knight Games at noblenight.com. Check them out. They're a great game store specializing in out-of-print materials, but also carrying the newest in, in game books and, and other materials. Uh, so check them out and make sure to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. And with that, enjoy the coverage from Gen Con. Noble Knight is a long-standing game store specializing in finding out-of-print games while also offering the newest great releases. Including D&D? They got it from any edition. That's right, all of them. What if I want a board game? Card game, minis, or dice? Noble Knight has it all, and at a discounted price. In fact, Noble Knight has over 30,000 unique items on stock. And you know you can trust this Better Business Bureau accredited store with a satisfaction guarantee. Yeah, but I've bought too many things over the years. How can I justify spending even more? Good thing we're talking about Noble Knight, then. They'll buy your old gaming things and offer you cash or trade, so you'll be able to keep up with all the great gaming stuff you want. Check them out at noblenight.com. Wow, I'll go today. And be sure to tell them the Tome Show sent you. (laughs) I'm going to send in one more invitation and see if that works, but in the meantime... Alright. That's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sounds coming up through my computer, not through the. Hey, Paul, can you hear us? Doesn't look like it. <laughs> or maybe uh, he's talking, I can't hear him. Can you hear me now? <laughs> he can totally hear us. I'm just getting the sound of the sound system. It's pretty loud, pretty loud. Um, I'll just take all the So it's now in the headphone jack. Oh, you know, the sound was off, was low on my head. How about that? How's that? Oh, yeah. 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 I'm going to see if there's any chance we can get video by. Hey, look at that! Wow! Oh, this is my okay. <laughs> <laughs> How about Max Hedlund? Oh, 
Byers. I've done a number of uh, Realms books, including uh, Your Rogue Dragons trilogy, the Haunterland trilogy, Brother of the Griffin sequence, R.S. Altor's uh, War of the Spider Queen book one, Dissolution, and my next one will be The Reaver, The Sundering book four. Uh, I'm Erin M. Evans. I'm the author of the third book in the Sundering series, The Adversary. I also wrote the Brimstone Angels books, uh, Brimstone Angels and Brimstone Angels Lesser Evils. My name is Ed Greenwood. I created the Forgotten Realms, so this is all my fault. <laughs> and I'm Bob Salvatore. I was lucky enough to put a book up at TSR that got me an audition to play in its playground, and I haven't left in 
many, 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 many,
It has to live, grow, and change constantly, or it becomes static and dead. I accepted this years and years ago when I was writing it for myself in 1966 at the age of six, before there was a D&D. So it was a comparatively easy thing for me to say yes when TSR wanted to buy the world to use it to be the home of the second edition of Dungeons and Dragons back in 1986. The first stuff started coming out in 1987. And from the very first published stuff, the realms has constantly been changing. And it's actually been a source of delight to me personally because the one thing that your world cannot do when it's your world is surprise you. Because you put everything there. If you want to know what's around the next bend in the road, you go around the bend and you write what's there. You don't get surprised by what's lurking there. But the moment other creative hands are at work in the same world, you can get surprised. Sometimes favorably. <laughs> but you get used to the fact it's a living, growing, changing world. And people do things in the world and create characters that you fall in love with that aren't yours. So, you know, there is Menzo Branson. There is Drizzt. There is that horrible setting he's growing up in. And there's Farida. You know, it's, things happen, and I go, wow, I could never have written this, and oh, this is happening in my world, and yay! And, and, and that's, that, to me, is the heartblood of the realms, is that it's alive, and changing, and moving, and evolving, and we all get to write in it. And for me, this is like, I watch that video and I say, oh, can I have that video? Like, for whenever I'm down, depressed, I can just watch that video and I'm back at those summits. And it's really cool. We were having fun and they were bringing us food. And it was just great. Yeah. I am questioning the integrity of this stage. Quit bouncing. Just a moment, all the necessary adjustments. <laughs> <laughs> now you see, usually he says, "Ed." Oh, I stopped him. You see, you can wear them down. <laughs> Talk more. Talk more? Yeah. No, someone else should talk more. So the last time we did it, why are you still centering? I'm curious. Troy, you were away from the realms for a long time. You tell us about the centering. How is it here? How did, no, relate it back to like 1987, because you were there. 
Um, well, I went away, and the realms was a world of high fantasy where I would play all of the adventures where I wanted to, you know, have a heroic element and um, and deal with uh, what I kind of think of as heroic fantasy. You know, um, there's always going to be a really good guy in there. It's not like Dark Sun where everybody's just trying to like live until tomorrow. Um, not like Planescape where nobody knows what the heck's going on. Um, you know, it was a, the place where things kind of made sense and, and where you really wanted to um, have that nobility and that, that, that rise and where kings were kings and, and, and good kings, you know. And, and then when I came back um, to talk with people, it, it, uh, it didn't seem that different, but it seemed like there had been this other dimension brought in. And that was uh, an interesting, fun aspect to, to, to um, see, but I didn't, I don't know if I'm, I may be being too vague, but uh, it, was, it was interesting that there was this, this undertone and the, the darker uh, aspect that had come in that I, I found a little bit surprising to me, and it, it uh, was fun to, to kind of look at it and say, okay, now we're going to go back to, we're going to move it back toward this. I don't know, I'm doing a very good, I'm doing it. No, you're, I'm getting exactly what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, there was, this, there was this kind of like this dark undercurrent that hadn't been there. And um, that surprised me. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't really kept careful track of it reading a few things, but I hadn't realized how pervasive it had become. And uh, I, I'm fun, I'm excited to see I think what, was, what I found that was missing when I finally began to understand what it, what it changed was the high fantasy, the, the heroic thing that I had loved was kind of taking a back seat to the darker edge that had become popular in fantasy at the time. And I guess that's what I missed. And, and what I'm really excited to help bring back is that high heroic feeling. Um, bring to the fore. I don't think it was, I mean, it's not that it's gone, apparently, but it, I think it's nice to bring it back to the fore um, and have um, a hero that I can really, one of, the, one of my heroes is a hero that I can really consider a hero, you know. He's, he's generally lawful good, probably the only lawful good character I've ever played or written, but. <laughs> So we've talked a little bit about the Sunburn as a realm-shaking event, the realm-shaking event, two end all realm-shaking events. Um, it is a big event in the world. It's also a big event in our world, in terms of the publishing world and a, a transmedia event. Um, I wonder if each of you, perhaps in book order, and I'll stand in for Paul, will uh, introduce the name of your book. Um, and a little bit about how your characters fit in with the round shaking event that is going on. Bob. <laughs> <laughs> the name of my book is The Companions. It came out last week, I think. Or it's out. It's the only one that's out so far. Um, it, to me, the, the sundering, not the sun, yeah, not the sundering per se, but the, the, the reversion, if you will, of the realms to a place of joy of adventure and joy began the day after, or the day of, a meeting at Gen Con about seven years ago. 
when Ed and I were in a room and we were told about the fourth edition and the 100 year jump and all of that. And when we walked out, we were like, okay, so, you know, where, where are we going to go from here? What's the long term for us? Because, you know, we have characters and all of a sudden they're going to be 100 years older. And so we began plotting, I think, right there in the hallway outside the room. And so for me, that's when it all began. And a couple of years ago, James told me about the, the sundering and the, what they were planning. I was nodding while he was telling me because we were expecting it. And I see this evolution in everything, in almost every game. You see it in every video game that's around for a while, right? It, it's, the world keeps moving in one direction, one direction, one direction, getting more and more crowded, more defined. And every now and then, like I said in that video there, you, you have to cleanse it. You have to go back to the freshness of it. And one of the reasons why I asked Troy, you know, to come in, because he was away from it for so long, and then he comes back in and he, he sees it. To me, this feels like 1987 again, where the realms is finding that joy and that innocence amidst really, you know, chaos and darkness. And so, you know, where the mind fit in, um, the only thing I can say to that is uh, my name is not Lukia. So there. Awesome. <laughs> so the companions is out this month, uh, also out this month, is an adventure for Dungeons and Dragons called Murder and Baldur's Gate. Um, that is an adventure that ties into the events of the Sundering. Um, it also ties into the events of the classic Baldur's Gate computer games, which is fun. Um, Shoot, what was I going to say? <laughs> oh, okay. it's an adventure for Dungeons and & Dragons, and it, it, the actual tech product has no statistics inside. All the game rule information you need is online in three different forms. That's D&D 3.5, D&D 4th Edition, and D&D Next. So it's a very flexible and versatile adventure. So then, in October, comes Paul Kemp's book. I'm so sad. Um, not that his book is coming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Owen says, don't forget to tell everyone that the Godborn is awesome. Um, <laughs> the Godborn is, is Paul's book. He is uh, awesome. And he is awesome. I, I read it over Christmas break and stayed up really late tonight for our attention because it was that good. That was last year. Wow. Um, Paul's book uh, involves some of his familiar characters in ways that I, I shouldn't probably say anything about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that's October, the Godborn, and it's awesome. Um, then in November is another adventure called Legacy of the Crystal Shard that uh, takes place up in Iceland Dale. And uh, just like Murder and Baldur's Gate, it ties into the events of the Sundering, and, um, uh, shoot. It's been a long three days. <laughs> um, it also has uh, statistics online for the three different game systems. That's what I was going to say. Um, so let's move on to Erin. <laughs> um, my book, The Adversary, comes out in December. Uh, features my character, Farida, who's a tiefling warlock. Um, she makes a decision early on trying to protect people that she loves. Um, feeling like she has to be the one to do the saving, um, and it gets her pulled into um, some kind of awful things that uh, the Shadow are doing. 
Um, and she has to figure out what it exactly is going on and how she can stop it um, while her friends and family try to figure out how to help her. Um, and I think for me, it, it fits into this idea of sundering. Um, I like writing about heroes who are facing odds that are way, way, way above their pay grade. Um, so they, you know, she's not, you know, the person who's going to take down Jade or something, but um, she's also not going to sit idly by and let bad things happen. Um, and I think that's, to me, that feels like the heroes of the realms. You know, these are people who, um, they're going to get it together and do the right thing and protect their their home um, and keep it, you know, a place that, that you want to be. Okay, my book is uh, The Reaver. It's a book which, to my mind, is very much reflective of the uh, kind of theme of rebirth and renewal, which uh, is what the centering as a whole is about. And if that doesn't make you want to read it, let me also mention that it uh, features pirates, red wizards, and undead, which to me is pretty much hitting a trifecta of uh, swashbuckling fantastic adventure. And uh, I'm very proud of it, and I think you all are going to like it. My book is uh, Sentinel, and it uh, features uh, a character who uh, gives the, gets the inspiration to the title. The title. Uh, he's uh, the watchman in Marsimber, the most corrupt city in Cormier, um, and he's honest. And um, that's a source of great frustration to him, as you can imagine. He's uh, uh, lawful good, wants to see everybody else be lawful good, and has dedicated his life to achieving that. And uh, along comes the, the sundering, and he finds himself embroiled with um, a noble woman who thinks that she thinks is the operative word, that she's the chosen of Seymour, and uh, gets swept up in some events that lead him um, into, in fact, earning the title of hero. I guess is the best way to put it. Oh, and Malik returns after a hundred years of wondering if he's And the sundering wraps up with the Herald. Being as the cover of the Herald has been um, visible in many places, including here for the last um, week, it's probably no spoiler to note that Elminster makes an appearance in the Herald. Uh, for those of you who have been reading the Sage's Shadowdale trilogy, my, my last three books, Elminster and Storm are both feeling very old, feeling very spent feeling as if it's time to go. It's time to end their lives, but they both feel they can't do that without training replacements, because, damn it, the bad guys can't win. So someone has to be there to take up the fight. And of course, whenever you have cunning plans of that sort, life crashes into them. And that's what happens in the Herald. I can. What, what, what else can I? I? Okay, let me let me say that there are certain places on the map of the realms. Can I mention some of them that might be visited in the course of the Herald? Sure. Okay, you're going to see Candlekeep. In fact, the eventual running in Hall D uh, 
confrontation with him if he accepts up the events of the Herald. Yes, and that's where the Herald begins, but it's not where the Herald ends. And you're going to see some long-time big wheels in the realms make an appearance on stage in front of you. They belch, they fart, mm. they swear, they fall over themselves, as always happens in my books. And out of that will emerge heroes. So in addition to the six books and the two adventures that I mentioned, uh, The Sundering is also a comic series. Uh, Rich Baker has written a series that is going to be published by IDW, um, which tells the events of The Sundering through the eyes of other characters in other parts of the world. Um, we have a digital game coming out later this year called Arena of War that ties in the events of the suffering as well. Um, so there are lots of changes happening in the world. Um, talking about ground shifting events again. The thing is that the goal of this last ground shifting event is to bring the world back to a sort of stable state that we can use as a platform for storytelling. Yes, there are still going to be big stories happening. Um, yes, there's still going to be important events happening, but our goal from this point is to keep the state of the world steadier, um, not kill any more gods or change the way magic works or make all the assassins go away except the fight rogues who take money to kill people. <laughs> but also one of the goals of, of the realm moving forward is that when there are big events happening, you are going to take part in that. And Murder in Baldur's Gate and Legacy of the Crystal Shard are a part of that. That as you play through these adventures, you can actually go and report your, your results and we'll aggregate those results, and those will make a difference. Maybe a, a slight difference, but Baldur's Gate is a tumultuous place with a very fragile balance of power, and the events of that adventure are going to shift that balance of power. So, enough about that. So, with all these big uh, realms changing events going on, what are the things that you all? Um, and we don't have to go down the line just in general, are, are most excited about in terms of, of changing the realms either back to more like the way it was or just changing it in general. What are the things that are going to make it easier for you to tell your stories? <laughs> Come on, uh, guys, wake up. <laughs> Is uh, I guess uh, I could I guess I would, it's not giving away too much to say that the Pantheon is expanding again and changing again. Uh, one of the things that I was not a fan of when we when, for coming out of the spell plague was the diminished number of gods because I always liked the cajillion gods of the realms and uh, that's being addressed and I'm very pleased about that. And will you talk a little bit about our discussions about the gods and the forgotten realms and your original intent? How we ended up with the we're coming back. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Uh, <laughs> so we had a conversation during the very first story yeah. summit about, uh, um, about Ed's original vision for how uh, God was working the realms and he's talking now, so maybe he can finish one sentence. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, okay, there's, there's three things here. Um, when I originally designed the Pantheon of the Realms, this was in the days of first edition, and to get published in Dragon Magazine, everything had to match the existing rules. And I was trying consciously to have a balanced number of deities representing every alignment and every shade of alignment, so they would be totally balanced, which is why there's a huge number. The other reason there is a huge number is because back in those days, everybody in the 
both players and DMs read every issue of Dragon. Everybody knew all this stuff. So there was what we used to call, we all Thursday and the click clicks fall down dead because they'd read Dragon and they knew exactly how to feed that monster. There, the mystery was being taken out of the game. The gods should be awe and wonder and mystery. And therefore, the other way to achieve that is to just overload you with information. So when you're sitting at the gaming table with all the stuff you've photocopied and all the stuff you've handwritten and all the stuff you've gathered together in 15 tattered books, all together, oh, let me look that up. You can't keep track of what happens. So when you burst through the doors and there's an altar and there's people standing in front of it and the flames are shooting up and this voice is saying, I am the great and powerful Oz. And you can't keep track of the gods. You don't know what you're facing, so you have to <gasps> gasp role play. <laughs> That's number one. Number two, over the years, with the best will in the world, much of the uh, written adventures and fiction had taken us into the living rooms and bathrooms of the gods. We'd seen them over and over again close up. They had lost their awe and wonder because they were becoming every day. They were becoming like the Greek gods of legend, overblown, loud humans. That thrill of, oh my goodness, there's a rosy glow suffusing the entire room. Could this be Lathander? You know, that sort of, that had completely gone and I want it back again. I want the gods to be awesome and mysterious. And in my original realms, you never met the gods face to face. What you got as an individual was dream visions. You would have a vivid dream or nightmare in which you could see something and you were doing something and the god was talking to you, perhaps through a priest, perhaps through a white stag or a unicorn floating in midair in the middle of a glade and you were just like, and you got the, you got the word. Or you went to a temple, you prayed, you made a sacrifice, and there was a manifestation like that rosy glow above the altar. And the priests in the temple were frightened and went to their knees and were weeping because the God was there. And you're saying, so should we go and attack that guy? Or is that a bad thing? And this cryptic reply would roll through your head and everybody would fall over unconscious. And then afterwards, you'd go back to your fellow adventurers and say, this is what the God said. You think it means. I want that flavor back, and let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I had those dreams Other changes that are going to help you set this, uh, tell your stories in the future? Well, this is not necessarily an enrolled thing, but the coming down to six books. I know that's really hard when you want to read as many as possible, but the nice thing is that it gives you enough space to really explore all the possible lore that you could be using there to go and ask the experts and go to your editor, go to the you know the RPG people and say, okay, well, I want to talk about this. What what's everything I could possibly need to know? So this you know this idea of sort of reknitting the continuity so that you, you get that feeling that this is a world that's gone on all this time. Um, it's it's easier to create when you have everybody working together and you have the time to do all that work um, to make a story that feels completely in the realms. You know. Wait, you're supposed to say we're supposed to do research? <laughs> <laughs> just, just do it really. <laughs> <laughs> One thing, um, 
I, I have to add here. You can see how hard it is for us to say things without giving things away. Yeah. I'm going to give something away. Because um, the book's been out for a whole week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's not this book. It's in the next one. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, one of the things that I know is happening, and it's not just in the realm, it's in fantasy in general, is ambiguity. A lot of it. About races and, you know, are orcs bad or are they good? And, you know, Warcraft comes in and you get the horde and everyone wants to play horde because it's cool and all of that. And I think a lot of that crept in as well. And so, like, when I was writing the books about King of Bull and that whole thing, there was, there was always more questions to me. You know, I always had my characters asking the question, did we do the right thing in signing the treaty? They're orcs. And with the neurons, or with the, the sundering and, and the refreshments we're bringing back to it, I called James up and I said, look, can I finally answer that question? Can we finally make a decision about this and eliminate some of the ambiguity? And he said, what do you want to do? And I told him, he goes, do it. And that's something I like, that we're going back to this fresh flavor of this is the world, and not black and white, that not, not talking anything like that, you know, we're good and evil, like that clearly delineated. But you, the ground feels firmer under my feet again in the realms. It feels fresh again. It feels like we've got this tapestry that we're painting on, but we know what to expect around the next corner. Because I remember the day when all of a sudden you're like, oh, how come there are no tieflings in your book? And I'm like, what's a tiefling? <laughs> I thought the tiefling was a little sprite there. You know, oh, no, it's, a, it's a half devil, whatever. And I'm like, oh, okay. And where are they? What do you mean? Oh, they're everywhere. They're in every city. And I said, why weren't they there before? <laughs> and these are the kind of things I think, as an author working in the realms, would, would kind of throw you off. It would kind of, you know, put quicksand on your feet instead of a foundation. And the Southern really allows us to put that foundation back, you know, brick by brick. And um, that feels very good as an author. I guess for me, it will be just that I'll have my high fantasy world to go and play in again. Um, you know, and, and writing is planned to like role playing all by yourself, which you know can be a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, it has occurred to me as we've been talking that it's possible that not everyone was here last year at the what is the Southern panel, and I'm not getting yeah, about. I'm not sure that uh, we've done enough to kind of explain, set the stage. Are you guys confused? Yeah. I'm always confused. <laughs> so, Do you know what's being sundered from what? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, last year I gave a 10-minute sermon at the start of the Waters and Sunday Hill, and I'm not going to do that But fundamentally, what we're doing, um, we're not rolling back the timeline. Everything keeps moving forward. Um, we are, the sundering refers to the separation of Amir and Toril, which were smashed together and weirdly intermingled during the spell plague. They are once again being separated. As Ao uh, rewrites the tablets of fate and reestablishes them as a boundary between the worlds and as a definition of divinity, basically. Um, so when the sundering is complete, and I talked about this last year, so it can't be too spoilery unless you've all forgotten it. <laughs> well, uh, when the sundering is complete, there will be no more dead gods, um, which is to say, there's a surge of life throughout the cosmos as, as gods that were gone and all but forgotten 
still kindle back to life and uh, try to weave their way back into mortal existence. Um, Martyrdom Baldur's Gate. And while that is going on, so there's this whole divine drama of the world's being split apart, the pantheon being reshaped, and the gods trying to figure out what's going on. Because it's not clear to them. They don't know, they know that Ao's going to rewrite the tablets of fate, but they don't know what that means. So the gods uh, invest little bits of their power into lots of chosen, trying to uh, do whatever it is that they think they need to do before the tablets of fate are rewritten. So uh, the activities of the Chosen are, are important in a lot of these books. Troy alluded to the, the noble woman who thinks she's a Chosen. Yeah. Um, but they're not like really, really powerful Chosen. These are a child who leaves a trail of flowers behind him on the ground as he walks because he's invested with some of the power of Shantaya, for example. How much time? Because some of the gods think that the new tablets will set in stone the new regime. So they, but they don't know how to get higher than they are now. So they're trying everything. Yeah. So while that whole divine project is going on, there's also a lot of political upheaval going on. We set the stage for some of that with the War of Everlasting Darkness encounter series at the end of uh, 2012, um, which has problems erupting in the north. Um, more problems are going to be erupting as a result of that. Uh, which will directly impact several of the characters who are operating in that area. Um, so that's kind of the big background picture. Does that help alleviate the confusion? Good date for me. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you read my 25-page story guide? Mm. Um, I couldn't open the file. <laughs> so that is the backdrop against which all of these uh, individual stories are taking place. Um, None of these books, or even these books as a whole, are telling the whole big cosmic story. They're telling the stories of individual people. And when I say books, I include the adventures and the comic books. Um, individual people trying to get by while all of this is going on. Oh, maybe I should mention the Creo, too. You guys no, heard about no, that? No, 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 no. All right. No. Um, all right, here's a wacky little question. And you guys all saw this coming. I, I told you that I was going to So I noticed a while ago that I always write the same book. Um, I had this crazy idea one point that I wanted to write a story about a guy who had been a werewolf and got cured and having to deal with all the ramifications of that. And that idea just kind of moved around in the back of my head. And then I realized that I had written four novels with pretty much that story of somebody trying to, um, to deal with the ramifications of bad things that they had done in the past. So that is a theme that is consistent in my writing. And I wonder, are you aware of um, themes within your writing, things that you keep touching back on and uh, explore and are doing in your suffering books, or not? I feel like I end up writing a lot about um, what identity means. Are you the person that you look like on the outside that other people have decided you are? Are the person you are when you interact with another individual, or are you the person that you feel like you are on the inside? Um, and it comes up in a lot of different ways, but often I finish a book and I'm like, oh, that one was too, actually. Um, even if there's some other theme that happens in it, um, I feel like the adversary has got a lot of somatic stuff around trust and and, um, and, and what it means to be an ally and, and you know what you owe to your allies and things like that. But um, that identity theme, I'd say that was mine that kept coming up. Well, the Reaver is set against this great 
cosmic event uh, where you know uh, the world is is changing and at first glance you might think well you know the world's changing all I can do is keep my head down and, and, and survive but um, the, the story is very much about the fact that um, even when great cosmic forces are at play um, individuals still have choices to make and those choices are ultimately going to determine uh, what the rest of their lives are going to be like and who they're going to be, which is a theme I've addressed in other stories. Uh, I guess I'm always surprised by the themes that the readers find in the books after I've written them and you know I see what what they discovered. Um, because I, I, when I approach a book, I'm always approaching the book from what does it need to make the story work? What does it need to make this? You know, what kind of characters does it call for? And so I get very involved in, in the elements of the story. And, and theme is one of those things that, for me, emerges from what you're doing. It's not something that you plan. If I sit down and I say, okay, this story is going to be, the, you know, this is going to be the theme of my story. Um, it never ends up being that. You know, I'll write about 100 pages and realize I'm writing a completely different book than, than what I thought I was writing. And uh, by the time I'm done with it, you know, I'm just concentrating on, on the story, the elements, the characters, trying to, to make all of that come to life as best as I can. And uh, when it's finished, somebody reads it and says, oh, I saw all these really cool things. And I, and I say, oh, yeah, I see what you mean. <laughs> And yeah, I'm somewhat in the same, I don't write for themes, but I know that being as the last bunch of novels have been about Elminster, inevitably, the things that he's facing at his time in life come up again and again because he's not resolving them because he can't resolve them and a bit of him doesn't want to resolve them, but they're things like growing old, trying to find an end goal and an achievement in your life, um, being tempted by all the various things that you could do and changing your priorities and then being changed by what you see around you because all of the chosen and I speak now not of the chosen that are popping up everywhere during the sundering but I've been talking now of the chosen of Mistra the ones who are still alive have seen all the friends they made all the countries they lived in and in some cases created and ruled swept away leaving them alone again. They're tired, they're lonely, they've seen everything, but there are all these new, young, vigorous people coming up past them, and they can see many of them get killed in front of them and so on, and, and it goes over and over, on and on again. The grief builds up, but there's also always this new hope and life and energy around them, and sometimes they feel very jaded and left out, and sometimes they feel bitter, and sometimes they feel inspired. Yes, it all goes on again. Oh, it's all going to go on without me when I finally go. And that I've been dealing with in book after book, not because that's what I wanted to write about, but because if Elminster's on stage, center stage, that's the baggage he's carrying with him. And unless I want to write a completely unrealistic book in which Elminster steps out of character for an entire book for my plot purposes, which just wouldn't work for me because I don't write that way, th those things are going to be front row and center. But that's not what I want the books to be about. Because, and this is a fight I have had with many an editor and not just with this publisher. I want my books to be about a broad tapestry of life and all these characters, not 
The character X as the protagonist goes from A to B and goes along this linear little line. We, we, we do have to write outlines, but those are merely suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, you were nodding when Troy was talking. Yeah, because he was talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like this question. <laughs> no, we already talked about this. That I, I don't ever think of my books that way. Yeah. And then you told me some things that were in my books, and I'm like, oh yeah, I guess they are. I think of my books as almost like talking to characters, these are my friends, and just hearing their stories and going on with them. Um, you know, I think there's one theme in, um, I, if you think of Mentor on and the way it was created, I have five older sisters. So I think my childhood trauma. <laughs> one thing I always try to do in the books, and is, is from the very beginning of Chris in particular, I have always kind of lived by the belief that the hero is the guy with the biggest heart, not the guy with the biggest sword. And I wanted a hero who actually tried to do the right thing all the time. Didn't always succeed, was often wrong, but he tried. This is how you can do it, right? And so I think the theme in the last few books is, is probably more about when I was looking at, at, at Dritz now, you know, a hundred years has passed, and he's trying to let go of the nostalgia and move forward, and he's having a hard time with that. And in, in a way, I think it probably does mirror, you know, getting older in my life. And, you know, I still play softball because I just won't let the kids have their way, you know? I uh, have to compete with them. They're going to fight all the way to the grave, And um, so I, I, I guess that's one. But you had actually mentioned something about my books that I went, I guess that's right, and I had never thought of it, so. That's the best answer you're going to get from me. Sorry, I don't know. I don't, I'm good. I, I, don't, I, I just don't think of the books that way. I, I, to me, I, I'm talking to friends, and sometimes they disappoint me, but most of the time they don't. Okay. So um, the video at the beginning talked a lot about our collaborative process in doing all of this. Um, most of that uh, was actually shot during our, our third story summit, the one we did at the beginning of this year. Um, we brought <coughs> most of these folks out to Wizards uh, twice and met here last year to, to talk story some more. Um, what, how does that collaboration intersect with your own personal writing process? Is, is there a back and forth? Um, what do you get out of working together? You get the energy, you get the synergy, the bouncing ideas off each other. The energy level in the room goes up because you're not sitting alone at the keyboard. You sit alone, and there's the cursor blinking, blinking, blinking. It, it, can, it can outweigh you, it can outlast you for hours. You have to make the first move because it's just content to go on blinking. And you still use dots. <laughs> I wrote in a map. I talked to it. <laughs> and it says, yes, master. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes, my pleasure. Nice. Save the fun. Yes, dear. <laughs> it's great fun. Um, but, <laughs> Sit down there. <laughs> but, but 
it is an essentially a lonely process, the actual writing. It can be fun. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you're blazing away and you've written half the novel, and then you, know, then you have to go up and make dinner. And other times you're working away and you're fighting to get through a single scene or whatever, and then you say, oh, the hell with it, and jump to some other part of the book and, and play around for a bit. But when you're in a room full of people, you can bounce the ideas off each other. They riff off your ideas and give them back to you. Oh, what, twist it this way, twist it that way. Or, what? You see it that way? That won't work because... And, which is great, because then you get somebody else's take on it. And you may think, oh, no, you're wrong. It can work this way. And, and then someone else will say, but nobody will know that by what's been printed thus far. And you go, oh... So if you go, what I think up here is not down on the page. So if I'm going to go there, I have to make sure the reader gets the explanation first without the stopping the plot to explain. No, Prince, in the days before, when, when the heroes are falling off the castle wall and they're suspended in midair, you know, and you cut to the commercial and explain things, that's not going to be a good... So this castle wall is actually fascinating. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it, it's great. And, and to get together, it is... And, and as I said earlier, just to look at that video again brings that all back. And yeah. it's like, hey, I want to be there. Um, God, this company's worth millions. Can't they just like house me and feed me and have us all there all the time? Wouldn't it be cool? <laughs> when you guys were talking to us, how do we get that feeling back? And one of the things that, I, that I, and Ed and I both mentioned was that back in the old Milwaukee Gen Cons, we used to have panels, and Troy will remember this very well, and we had the, we had the authors out there. And we just sat at Rift. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was Troy, Doug Niles, and Elaine Cunningham, me, Edge, and Wilder. Um, Jeff Grubb was there. And, and we just sat playing off each other. And as, as an author who lives, you know, at that, you know, 2,000 miles at that time away from Lake Geneva, uh, I wasn't working at TSR. And I'm 3,000 miles from moving to the coast, right? We're on, we're on opposite coasts. And, when you're in the room and you hear that, what you're really getting is you're getting a sense for where the other authors are taking their parts of the realm. And that helps you so much in what you're doing because you're seeing so much flavor that should spill over into your books. Maybe not the characters spilling over or whatever, but if I'm writing my book and I'm in, in Baldur's Gate, for example, and Ed's writing a book about something big happening in Waterdeep, just being able to find that Easter egg out of what he's doing. And I think that was lost for a long time among us. I really do. Where we almost became isolated in our works instead of all getting together. And those summits, um, I think everyone here will agree with what Ed said. For me, when I got home from that first summit in particular, I was like dancing. I was like ready to go. I couldn't start right. typing. It, it was, it, you, you build on energy yeah. with the people around you. And, um, you know, to see. What really got me at the first time was when Troy and Ed just, you could see they fell back to 1988 or 87. And they were right back there arguing about, or I like to say 86, they were right back there arguing about what should go in the gray box. I mean, that's what they were doing. And you were giggling like a schoolgirl. Like the whiteboard. James is trying to, like, condense all the notes as we're talking. And he's like, "Eh, oh, can we do it this way? And, and, and it just became infectious. Yeah. And, and it, it's hard. The, the, I mentioned this in my, my other panel the other day. When you're, if you're sitting in a room making music on a Mac with, um, you know, music for dummies or whatever program you're using, 
That's great, and you can do some really good stuff. But when you're in the studio with other musicians, and you're playing off their energy, that's when you go to the next level. That's when you are pushed to be the very best in every note you play, because they are, and they're driving you. And, and I mentioned the other day, and I'll say it again, if you ever get a chance to see a movie called It Might Get Loud, you've got Jack White, Jimmy Page, and The Edge sitting in a room playing guitar. And, you know, three guys are around playing guitar. And by the time it's done, you're hearing music that's coming out of these guitars that is like, how did they do that? And I think the same thing happened. And, and I, I know I felt that way when I left yeah, that meeting. Yeah. I agree. I mean, it, it's inspiring enough to me for a project. Oh, you know, you're... You know, Ed's also doing a book, Bob's also doing a book, Eric's doing a book, Troy's doing a book. But to actually be in the room and hear, you know, what book Bob is going to do, what his ideas are, and see how excited he is about it, it's like, damn, that's going to be awesome. I better do something pretty damn good, too. <laughs> and then when you were doing that with your book, when, yeah. you, when you were saying what you wanted yeah. to do, remember I said, can I, can I steal this one time right. for a spider? And can I, can I go over there? Because this is, sounds really good. Yeah. And, and that's the way it happens. Yeah, it's so hard sitting here because mm. the last summit, Bob told us what's going in the next four books. Mm. And it's so hard to keep my emotion. We won't know, tell. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's four books. Yeah. And, and I'm sitting there going, yes, yes. And I, I can't wait for that to come. I have to keep my emotions because it's going to be so much better if I wait. Do any of you have the new Menzo Baranzan book that just came out? Last summer, last year. Was it last summer? You didn't tell me. How do I have one? <laughs> <laughs> See what they do? No, I have a PDF. I have a PDF. That's all I have. All right, well, anyway, if you've got that book, it will be outdated, so that's almost <laughs> Is it talking about the what ninja wear designs? Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, the beauty of that book is that battery low. <laughs> the beauty of that book is that we actually intended it to be playable in any era. So it won't have the most up-to-date information, but lots of it will still be useful. Yes. It's useful to me. I have it on my desktop. I just keep opening up to see which house tonight. Kill there. <laughs> <laughs> there was a mention of Easter eggs. There are more. Yes, there are some. <laughs> yes. Is it to yes. Or? Christmas candy. Might yeah. talk Do you want to talk about just the fact that there's a character in common among? Oh, yeah. Well, like for example, um, in the adversary, uh, Rita's taken to this place. This seems like it might be a it might be a war camp. It might be a village. It's kind of strange. Um, um, but it's there's a character in there, a little boy named Stead, um, that I I got to borrow, who is actually a character in Richard's yeah. book. Of quite is, a major character. Yeah, which is really, really, really nerve-wracking <laughs> when you have to write someone else's character. It's like if I sent you several scenes, it's like, is this, is this how he sound? Is this exactly how the dialogue right. would go? Um, but yeah, you, you try to find places and points where they connect. You get Troy's character um, knows one of my characters at one point. Um, and I really I appreciated the way, too. I mean, I think that doing that Easter egg stuff, is, it can be really just easy to do, but taking the time to do it well so it feels organic, so it's not just like, hey, by the way, there's another book. Um, it's, it feels like the whole world is kind of knit together. Um, I think that's, you know, that was pretty cool. Yeah, I'm, I that. created a, a um, kind of a master smuggler character that works around the Sea of Fallen Stars that you found a, a bit part for, I believe. 
Yeah, he plays a fairly important role without taking over any. He's not a scene stealer, but he's kind of crucial to the adventure. Yeah, so that that stuff is fun as you see as you see it run through. And because I was writing the wrap up book, I wanted to make sure, and I'm still waiting. You know, as we check through the editing, if there's anything that needs to be said before the end of the series, my book is the last chance to say it. So you know, if there's anything that you know, any boxes that need to be checked, references. But when I was plotting it, I was going back and forth with Fleetwood, who was editing the book, and I wanted to put everybody in. You know, you go through the old gray box and you tell us what everybody's doing. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. he was getting out of the bath and, you know, and, and, and have every character was going, you can't do this, Ed. You can't have a cast of 120,000. I said, why not? It's called the Forgotten Realms. And, and, he said, and he said, you can't have them between the covers of your book. We need to tell the story of a fewer number of people than 120,000, so it was who we left out. But still, to write it, I have to know what all those touchstone characters were doing in my head. Whether it makes it into the final book or not, I have to know. So when the book comes out in June next year, I will be ready at Gen Con next year for you all to come up and ask what your favorite character was doing during the events at the Herald. <laughs> Yeah, I will tell you. You may not want to hear it, but I will. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a different kind of Easter egg, I guess, or I don't know if Easter egg is the right term. But in addition to having a couple characters that are, appear in other books in the series, I also utilize some characters from uh, older supplements that you haven't seen or heard of for a while. And then, uh, if you're a real Realms fan, have read many of the older regional books and stuff like that. Oh, that guy! (laughs) (laughs) So I have one last question before we get to good questions, Mm -hmm. which is, um, what are you looking forward to? What are you excited about in terms of the future of the realms? How can can we answer that without spoilers? (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to... uh, <laughs> and, um, you, need, you need like a buzzer, and every time we cross the line. Not necessarily about your book, but about like what are your hopes for the future of the realms? What would you like to see off in the distance? TV series. <laughs> <laughs> they call it the Game of Forgotten Thrones. <laughs> Blockbuster movies, bendable action figures, hand puppets, lunch buckets, um, New York Times bestseller. Um, and I would like to see a Rome's novel line that is about, I don't know, 20 novels big each year, but I want the entire adult and, and children reading population of North America buying each one so that we can afford to have that right. many novels here. I want everybody to live realms mm. all the time. <laughs> I want to be in your fridge. <laughs> I want free. <laughs> your wishes are command. Incidentally, New York Times bestseller. Yay! Anything else? Uh, I mean, I, I've, I've always thought of the realms as this incredibly rich, fascinating uh, setting that is big enough to hold uh, 
many different kinds of fantasy adventure stories kind of you know told in many different like the real high adventure high fantasy stuff so it's a little darker the, the sword and sorcery is a little darker edge your sword and sorcery if you read my stuff you know I kind of like that I think there is a room for, I think there's room for that too I think we can have some of those and uh, I'll write them uh, and uh, uh, that's that's what I want to see going for that that kind of the richness and the diversity of the world it was all the for my stuff going forward uh, there's um, I'm setting I'm setting stuff up in uh, the Reaver to move forward with that um, I mean if I, I don't want to spoil anything but if you've read my previous realms books you know like certain areas certain um, issues that I've looked at in the past I'm going to continue. I'm going to take those to the next phase and show you what happened next. And I've also been told that uh, in due course we will be getting back to my mercenary company, Brotherhood of the Griffin, also. So uh, those of you who like them, we will see more of them by and by. And just give a little spoiler on it, folks. I'm looking forward to when they find you back That was the best sex scene I ever did. <laughs> <laughs> With a broken mic. Yeah, yeah. So you're gonna have to speak up, and we're gonna have to repeat questions. Okay. I don't. You really didn't answer, but. Hmm. Well, you kind of did, but is there gonna be any like, like any of Bob's characters, in you know maybe making a cameo appearance in any of the other books, or is it you know what I'm saying, like, or maybe uh, Elminster going to be appearing in some of the other you know what I'm saying, to to kind of. You know, there's a continuity there, or is it going to be enough? Is the story going to be enough that we realize what's going on? Does want to address that? I think the story is going to be enough. I mean, just speaking for myself, I know that the things that happen in Bob's book to the world and the things that happen in, in Paul's book um, have a major effect on what's what the state of affairs is at the beginning of mine and how you know certain powers react and move on from that. Um, you know, there's not like, like Elminster doesn't show up and say, hey guys. Um, <laughs> but there's, you know, <laughs> not that it didn't try to convince me that would be awesome. <laughs> but I don't think, I don't think I ever want to put Farida. I don't want to put Farida in the room with Elminster or something like that. Oh, I do. <laughs> do you like the smell of burning beard? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that that's the, the bigger. I think the the way to look at it is you have this huge, big, high-level thing happening, and as far as the novels, you have sort of six windows into it, and they, you know, the the world is changing, and those changes do affect the next story. Um, uh, well, so while the same characters aren't running through all the scenes, yeah, it's not the Avengers. Yeah. Right. Well, think, of it, think of it like we're writing books about World War II or something. Yeah. Right? Now they're doing Blitz, and okay. you know Ed's doing North Africa, and Aaron's doing the Holocaust. Yeah. Or, and so, are there some characters or here or there that may show up in different books? Probably, but the, particularly the featured characters. 
And like for me, I, I'm just rolling forward from the companions with my characters. My next book comes out in March of next year, Night of the Hunter, it's already done. And I'm working on the book for next August. So like I'm rolling forward with my story, you know, through the sundering and post sundering, if you will. And I'm, I'm sure that everyone else is hoping to do the same. If they're not already there, my legs are already out, so I have to keep working. Yes? Question there? Uh, sort of a technical question. Uh, Timelines mean a lot, especially when you're trying to sort of DM something. And so, sort of my, my question is in two parts. One, how long of a period of time from sort of the start of the hunt for Sundry to the end of the Sundry, the years that we're sort of talking about? And then, with the goal of allowing people to just sort of run games from the conclusion of the Sundry, can we expect that there aren't going to be any big time jumps going on for a little while? They're better than I <laughs> No, I'm serious. Yeah. <laughs> like, that hurt. Um, just from just from a creative point of view, it, I mean, it forces you into places that can be very good, but it's no. Please don't. Um, my book takes place. Well, the last threshold really was was designed to catch me up. Um, this the companions takes place. It begins before the sundering but leads up to around 1484. And do you remember the years for your book? And year? <clears throat> I think it's 1487, yeah. That sounds um, right, because I think mine's yeah. 1486, so. Uh, yeah, it, it, which would? That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. maybe around yeah. there, yeah. Mine's 1492. <laughs> 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 um, one thing, and I, I think James should talk about this a little bit, when we were sitting down, and I think that everyone here had the same experience, and we were going over events, and we said, well, let's do, you know, in my book, we're going to do this in this year. And so you'd name the year, and then somebody else would go up and they'd look up the year. Do you remember this? We talked about that a little bit. It was really weird. It was a little creepy. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob's book ends in the year of the awakened sleepers, purely by coincidence. Which may or may not have any relevance to the story. Shoot. I'm experiencing difficulties. You should see your doctor. <laughs> Remember that though when we were sitting in the room and yeah, yeah, we were, uh, yeah. let's do this year and this is the year of the and we, and we all just sit there and go, whoa. We put that together in like nineteen ninety one or some silly thing and we're all sitting there and all the year names are making perfect sense right. for what Proxy. we're doing, and we're like, okay, yeah. this is like creeping yeah. me out. <laughs> yeah. And some of those are names I did in like 1979. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was bizarre. Because I was thinking ahead, not to this, but I was thinking ahead that there would be tumultuous events. And, but it was freaky how they fit in with what we were talking about. You're no Nostradamus. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, there's more! <laughs> um, the other thing I was going to say about that question is that despite the coincidence in real-world timing, the Sundering is not about converting the realms to 5th edition, edition, if there were such a thing, to, to a new rule set. Mm. And we're not saying there is there. Um, it's, so it's not about uh, 
keeping the realms in line with changes in the rules of the game. We're done with that. that that's why we killed all the assassins. I'm really, really? Oh. <laughs> 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 all the characters with the assassin class. That's easy to change. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, when you set your games, it, it's not really an issue. You know, if you want to use the DB Next rules to run a game in 1382, be our guest. Other questions? Wait, the night you lose Yeah. Do you find the new rules coming out for like DB Next influence the way that you think about writing books or helping you with new aspects of? Not necessarily combat or flavor or fluff or anything that you didn't necessarily have with some previous editions? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. I mean, that's. Um, I mean, I think I, my general impression of. Uh, how D&D magic works and, and what the realms is has been formed by pretty much, you know, significantly earlier material than anything that you're seeing now when you get right down to it. And when I sit down and write a you know, when I sit down and write a scene with a wizard is throwing spells, you know, it's it's basically I've learned that trying to keep up with all the change, the many, many changes in the rules is kind of a mugs game because your stuff's going to be outdated eventually anyway. Uh, or, or, well, I'm sure D&D Next is the last, but till now. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but uh, it's, um, you know, so I mean, I just, I just I, it's just, if it feels, if it feels like D&D and it feels like the realms to me, I roll with it. I mean, yeah. I think the nice thing too is that there have been times where they've come and said, "You use this element a lot. Um, what is it that you need to stay true?" Because they don't, we don't want to come to you and say, "Okay, all of a sudden, ritual magic works like this," and your character who relies on ritual magic and that's like his whole thing, suddenly you're going to have to write into your story how he suddenly changed and lost his, you know, reason for being and all of this stuff. So. How do we work with these things together so that you don't turn the story into explaining the rule changes? You know, so you get to tell a story that's good and engaging and feels like D&D without feeling like a way to sell you on something different about mechanics. Because, um, like you said, you, know, you should be able to use which mechanic you want. The way I always think about it is that the Forgotten Realms is the world, and whatever rule system you're using to play D&D is just a, an interface, a, a user interface to that world. And the world doesn't need to change if the user interface changes. When you've been doing these series as long as Heather, I've been doing one, when you get letters from, like I got a letter from a guy screaming at me because Dritzen and Pharaoh were CR 17 and the White Dragon was CR 25. How could they possibly be them? In the Crystal Shard, and I said that book was written in first edition D&D. Yeah, so, and he was really mad at it. And he was like, well, so, and I said, so go look at a first edition monster manual, and you will see that white dragons are pretty wimpy. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I go along with what everyone said, that, that you don't want to get a dice roll in the background and write your book. I, I give it to very detailed battle scenes anyway. And I'm sure that my characters are doing things that you can't do anyway, so. Um, <laughs> but actually I did in, in one of the Neverwinter books. I wrote an anatomically correct fourth edition battle. 
and I had stacks of cards for everybody involved and then I figured out what level they were and everything and I did this one scene where I think it was uh, Barabbas and, and um, Ephraim in the woods fighting against some, some zealots that were coming against them and I, had, I was doing all the exact powers and oh, what would we use as daily now and all of this and I wrote this and it took me like five days to write the damn scene and when I got done I was just like I'm never doing that. <laughs> I liked the end result, but it was like, I'm never doing that again. So I'm just going to go back to one dwarf grabbing the other dwarf by the ankles and swinging them around. <laughs> Actually, this brings up a, a inner secrets of TSR design story from the, the mists of time. My novel, Spellfire, um, no, I'm not going to go into the long, sad story. But at one point... I've read that story. Yes. <laughs> at one point, I had an editor who said, oh, yes, every time anyone casts a spell, describe it fully, all their gestures, how they get out the material components, and give us, and we'll put it in italics and treat it like verse and put it down the center of the page, the exact incantation that they utter. So I did this for every spell in the book. The gaming guys were having orgasms. <laughs> because any DM could read out, you know, it's fireball time. Okay, you do this, you pull out this pinch of salt here, you do this, and you go, by tongue of bat and self reek in the mystic words I now do speak, where I wish to play my game, let him to your birth into flame! And then there's your spell. Yeah. And they could use that every time. But the fiction guys were going, do you know how slow and plodding this is? You have fights where six guys hurl spells, and it takes 13, 14 pages. And the pacing just goes... <laughs> and at that time, bullet time hadn't been invented. <laughs> so they weren't going to let me do all my fights in bullet time, particularly as the grunts in the fight all they were doing was throwing knives and then drawing their swords and sprinting across the chamber were going to be like this for six pages. Yeah, exactly. And as a writer, by the end of that six pages, I wanted to drop the banana peel in front of them, open the window, and let them sail through because I needed the release. Um, so after I did the first little bit, they just ripped those out and said, never, ever do that again. I said, oh, thank God. <laughs> and then the games guys took these little spell descriptions and took them home. <laughs> I'm sure we still have them somewhere. Somewhere, yes. Oh, yes, I can give you all the incantations if you don't stop me. Stop them. Yeah. <laughs> really, really, you want to stop me. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, first off, thank you guys for all you do. It's uh, amazing just uh, the abilities you guys have to put down on paper for us to enjoy out of the real world. Um, as much as I would love to live in the realms, as you said, uh, Mr. Green, uh, do you guys ever wonder if when uh, you guys tied this so well together as a, a huge collaborative team that people may be able to miss major parts because they just don't have an opportunity to keep up with all this whole stack of books that are coming out? You know, you're, you're three books ahead of me. I'm trying so hard. But it's amazing. I got it. Great. 
No. No, I don't, I don't worry about that at all because it's a journey and everybody's going to go at their own pace yeah. know, or choose to go or not to go. I mean, one of the things that became abundantly clear to me several years ago at the book signing is that when I had a book come out, um, you know, at a book signing, people were coming up with their books that they wanted me to sign they were currently reading. It would be 10 different books because they're way behind or whatever. But that's, no, I don't worry about that at all. It, Everybody's on their own path and they'll find their own way. And, you know, like, for me, with some like 35 Rome's books now or some silly thing, um, it, it's also one of the reasons why I did books the way I did them personally. And that is, you can pick up any dark elf book and read it and get a beginning, middle, and end of the story. It, I, I wrote, I purposely structured the books more like James Bond or Sherlock Holmes than Wheel of Time. You can't pick up the fifth book in Wheel of Time. And if you pick up the third book and say A Song of Ice and Fire, you're going to wonder who all these dead characters they're talking about. Um, so, but, so I purposely did it that way because one of the things that I know is true about, about this genre in particular is that people slip in and out of it all the time. You know, um, you're going off in the military and you become a gigantic fantasy reader while you're sitting overseas. It happens all the time. But then you get home and you've got a family now. You've got, to get, you've got a new full-time job, whatever, you kind of fall out of it. So you should be able to come back in seamlessly. Yeah, I echo everything Bob said with the caveat. The thing that frustrates me is when books go out of print, or they're only in one yeah. format, or they're exclusive to Gen Con or anything like that, and you can't get your hands on them. Yeah. And I think, that's, yeah, I think that's not fair to readers who don't, because a part of the story is denied them. So if there was a way of print, whether it's an ebook only, okay, make it print on demand later on, because no realms reader who's going on at their own pace should ever encounter. Oh, that's been out of print for years. You can't get that. Well, why the hell not? Company's still in business, publishing stuff. Make it so. You know, I, that's that's the one caveat. I want people to be able to read. But and the other thing is. There are all, always books that are right for you at a different time in your life. We've all read books in school that we went, whoa, why the heck was that even on the course? It's terrible. And if we come back to that same book 10, 15, 20 years later in our life, we go, hey, this is a great book. I don't know why I never, because we weren't ready for it then. You know, it, there's a reason you come to books at a yeah, different time. And there are books that speak to you about because of what's happening in your own life far more powerfully. I mean, if you're a lonely outcast, Homeland is going to hit you like a ton of bricks. It's going to become your touchstone. If you're not, it's going to mean something completely different to you. If you're lonely, the sort of buddy books where this group of adventurers gets together and does something cool together is going to mean so much more. Yeah. And, and yeah, you can read them chronologically, but you can read them chronologically only afterwards looking back because they weren't published chronologically. <laughs> and then there are books you get in school and you go, ugh. And then you read them when you're old and you go, ugh. You've <laughs> <laughs> from, I'm looking right at you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying this for James' benefit. I heard a really curious thing with this whole print over the man thing. From, I was over in France and the French publisher told me that they publish books, you know, books come with paperback. But you can still get them in hardcover if you want them. It's just pretty expensive, but they'll go and print it. So they take orders and they print them in hardcover for the people that want the hardcover. 
I thought that was really interesting, yeah. and maybe that's where it's going. That it'll be, it'll be. I want paperback. You know, the book, the book's been out for five years. It's only paperback, but I want a hardcover. Here, you know. Um, that's, that's, I can see that happening. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Thank you. Yeah, you yeah. Had you guys talked about like the really positive aspects of the collaboration that you all got to do and just all the fun. Were there any ideas that, that any of you guys had that you thought would be really, really cool but just didn't quite fit into you know, how everyone else was thinking? Like, where anytime you collaborate with things, you're always going to have to make little sacrifices to, to fit with the group mind. I don't know. Everything worked perfectly. <laughs> But I don't think the realms is set up that way. I mean, maybe in the meta stories or whatever, but you're in your own region, you got your own characters, and you beat them up the way you see that true story, right? You know, I think there were a couple of times where we would toss out an idea and say, what if we do this? And somebody would say, no, that won't work because of this, and we'll, but maybe we can work more like this. But that stuff happened so quickly yeah. that, that you almost can't remember it. Yeah. Um, I don't recall any protected discussions, and maybe it's just because I have a bad memory, um, where we actually discussed an idea for 15 or 20 minutes and, and decided not to use it, or, or, you know, it always seemed to morph into something that would, would be usable. And, and am I remembering that right? No, I, you you've yeah. got it dead right, yeah. It seems to me that when, if an idea kind of went by the wayside, it was more an idea where we were just discussing kind of what the sundering in general was going to be. I think when it came down to the level of talking about, okay, what I want to do in my story, I don't, I don't, I don't recall anything. Yeah. There, there was a little bit of coordination, you know. You, yeah, oh yeah. Uh, you, you know, yeah. If similar ideas occurred, well, we probably shouldn't do that in both places. Um, a couple of things like that. Right. But um, generally, I think, you know, you have to, when somebody's doing, talking about what they're going to do in their book, the rest of us would kind of step back and listen and look for places where we could offer a suggestion or a cool twist or something, right. or coordinate with it, or something along those lines. But you, you pretty much, once the groundwork is established and the, and the foundation laid, then we would not say, oh, no, you shouldn't write that book. And, you know, you yeah, no, see, no, actually, it went the way you said, more yeah. often than not, because like, Right in the middle of, as I was taught, because I was doing the first book, so I really had to come up, I wanted to come up with something very concrete that I was, I was going to present as the first book. Even though they weren't building on my book, because they were doing their own books, just to show them where I was going, because I, I had to go first. But I was also thinking of ahead of what's going to be the book that's going to come out in March 2014, and August 2014, and March 2015, and all of that. And when I was doing that, as I was going forward, all of a sudden, as I'm saying, you know, I'm kind of thinking I might want to go here and do this. And then Troy would say, well, you know, this is going on. And Richard would say, well, if this happens. And everyone would say, you know, well. And so I'm sitting there, and now I'm getting all these things being fed back to me. And that's what I talk about, where the richness of the realms, when you know what the other people are doing in the area. So my thoughts became more crystallized, but it was, it, the process was not a reduction. We can't do that. It was an addition. We can do it even better if we go this way. For me, almost the whole way through both of those summits that I was at. Going back, how was the book order chosen for author? Like, so 
So Bob was first and Ned's last. Was there cross draws or? <laughs> we actually worked on that at the summit. I remember mm -hmm. writing stuff up on the board. Yeah, you I was doing it the one I wasn't at. So I was like, I have no idea. They just said you're book three. <laughs> <laughs> I said, cool. It may have been partly a matter of what made sense. Um, you know, like Paul had an idea of the kind of book he wanted to write and that fit where we were going to be doing that particular thing with the world. Um, in my case, it was a lot of schedule. I, you know, I was working on something else and couldn't start it until, you know, I would be pretty late in the series. Yeah, I think mine was, was going to be the most cryptic of the books in terms of the Sunday. Um, and what was going on, so it made sense for me. Plus, I had other books coming out. I had, you know, books coming out where I could kind of preface my own book a little bit, and the comic series that I was doing where I could preface my own book. So it made sense for me to, to get this book out there first, I think. And, and I really think that the one decision that was made by everybody was we really wanted it to go last and tie it all up. Because I think we all agreed from the very beginning that one of the most important things of making the Sundering work for the people who play and live and read in the world is, is getting back to the vision of Ed Greenwood. Right. <laughs> so he should go back. Yeah. I saw more hands over there. Green shirt first, and then brown shirt. <laughs> Maybe more of a spoiler question, more curiosity. Throughout all the books, are we, I mean, we're going to see all the characters themselves, Alan and Strainer, but are we going to see more from the gods' point of view, at least to some extent, just to see what their turmoil with what's going on is happening? You know, just so we understand. That'll us. probably depend on the author. Mm. Um, some uh, authors are more comfortable with you, using gods than others. You'll see a little offstage god stuff in mine. You think for the most part that gods are sort of there and they're sort of nudging their followers, but they're not necessarily the characters having conversations and talking about what you know their motivations are going through. You have to kind of divine that from the, the way that God's speaking to you, the way Ed was talking about. You get this weird vision and then you go, oh God, I think it means this. Um, and you know, depending on the God, that's true, that's not right. <laughs> because the other thing the gods are doing during this is testing mortals to be their followers. Who is truly loyal? Who's in it for themselves? Who's really good at getting not just the letter of what I tell them, but the spirit, so that they improvise in situations. They don't go, I don't know what to do, or run away. They go, I don't know what to do, but I think the God may, meant this, and then they do the right thing. And then God goes, okay, that guy, that guy I keep alive. You know, and so there's a bit of that going on. Not overtly, we're not gonna stop and tell you that, but you'll get the feeling as things are unfolding. Yeah, there's gonna be far more of that than there's going to be and meanwhile, the god sat upstairs doing his nails and looking down. And, you know, and, yeah. and for me, philosophically speaking, I've always used the gods as interpretations from the characters. You know, one of the scenes when Dritz found Myliki is he says he doesn't know that he found a god. All he found was a name for that which was already in his heart, right? And, and that's the way I've always approached the characters in my books. And there's a reason why, I mean, that was one of the reasons why I didn't want to write one of the War of the Spider Queen books because it was out of my comfort zone. So I was happier being a consultant on the series and an editor on the series than writing the books about the gods themselves. It's just not something I've ever been comfortable with philosophically. I prefer to go through the, the eyes of 
people interpreting what they think are gods. You know, in my forgotten realms, in my head, I don't know that there are any gods. I know there are a whole bunch of people who think they are and act certain ways because of them. And that's, you know, that's just, it feels better to me, personally. <laughs> Any of these former uh, Cunningham approached or offered or consulted with in terms of the writing? I think that's a question we would best not answer. <laughs> 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 Troy. <laughs> yeah, me. Move on, James. Move on. Yeah. Mm. Quickly, quickly. <laughs> Any of that through this story, or are we waiting to see that in the campaign setting? Even the two adventures, one takes place in Icewind Dale and the other one takes place in Baldur's Gate, they're really not. There is a tricky balancing act there where, um, on the one hand, the Heartlands are the most kind of classic forgotten realms, and that's what we wanted to emphasize and uh, really put center stage. Um, Troy ventures out from there somewhat to start to see some of the, the geographical effects of the summer. Yeah. Um, for the rest, you will have to wait for future products of some kind. Jeff? Uh, speaking of future products, uh, what, with this exciting event going on, um, there's other stories that have sort of been put on pause. Is there a plan to give those authors the opportunity to sort of continue with those stories? We are not prepared to announce anything about that yet. <laughs> oh, okay. Wait a minute. Given the level of excitement you all expressed about the summit and the whole collaborative process, is there any thoughts in the future of doing something similar again? Maybe just a lot and having several authors sit together and come up with their own points of view on it? Yes. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> My house is big enough, they can all come over. <laughs> Sutton. Sundering too, this time it's personal. Wizards has expressed great interest in, in continuing the summit process, just going forward for the flavor of the world. Not so much to create another realm shaking event, because this is the realm shaking event to end all realm shaking events, but just because the value of getting us all in the room, and it's not just the authors, you have to understand, it's not just the authors, it's the art team, it's the editors, it's the brand team, it's all the people, it's the people who are licensing realms out to the video game people or whatever. It, it, the collaborative process works better when you're actually collaborating. So yes, and I keep trying to get them to do it on in February, because February in New England is awful. If I have to go out to Seattle, it's a very short flight to Hawaii. <laughs> so I keep saying, do it in February so I can bounce through on my way to Maui. <laughs> February Didn't we do it in February last time when you had to leave early because of the blizzard in Boston? Yes, Snowmageddon, and I couldn't get home for another yeah, day. Extra. Mm -hmm. I spent but an see, extra day in the see, next time I'll plan just to go to Hawaii, so I'll stay long. 
I was going to say the last story summit, you know, a lot of it was kind of um, tightening up what we were doing with the Sundering and how the stories fit together. But then we were also talking about what the next books for these characters would be and what the next stories would be and how, you know, those would influence each other or kind of reflect each other in a sort of thematic way that maybe they could use in that sort of transmedia sense, um, where it's not a huge story, right? It's the, the next logical step for these characters, the next you know, evolution of their, of their journey, um, but how to make them keep feeling cohesive and, and all part of the same world. Um, but yeah. Cool. Uh, right there. I just want to say thanks. I mean, your instinct, you know, excitement about this project is, you know, for those of us who were there in 87 and 88, you know, whether you're a gamer or a reader, and you're just so excited to have that next new product from Editor, you know, passing around your tattered version of the Crystal Shard to all your gaming buddies to get through the game adventures. <laughs> it was, um, you know, you was infectious for us. We were excited to see this stuff and this resetting of the table and your guys' excitement. I mean I just hope you know one sliver of that carries over to us as readers because I'm I'm rejuvenated for twenty five years, you know, that's good. Yay. Yes. Sliver. Yay. Mission accomplished. Well read the books first and let us know next year. It feels like 1988 again. It really does. Except our knees. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is kind of off the subject, and I've been to several Bob's, and I know what he thinks of it. What are the risks do you think about the e-books and e-publishing and you know how it's more or less, I don't know if it's going to take over, but you know you might... The, the hardcover book and the paperback might become a thing of the past because of the e-books. Uh, you know, I just wanted to be interested in your take on it. I don't think that print is going away as fast as some, you know, mm -hmm. doomsayers say. Um, there's just, there's still such a market for it, but I think that e-books have a lot going for them. Um, one thing I love about my e-reader is that I have this instant gratification. I want this book. Oh! I have this book, you know, I can read it. Um, but they're terrible for browsing. You know, you, you the, the way that, that we are culturally about books, we go, you know, even if we're going to buy something off Amazon, if we're going to buy something for Kindle, we go into the bookstores and we look what they have. Um, and mm -hmm. So I don't think it's going to it's going to completely overtake. That said, you know, there are, there's a lot of, of positive aspects about it, and clearly that market share is getting bigger and bigger every year. Um, and, and it, you know, provides a lot of... In the U.S. Yeah. In the U.S. Yeah. I, I, I work in the library. And I buy books all the time, both for the library and for me. And, you know, I, I pay attention to the world of publishing. And, and the people who are converts, who live in high-speed internet urban centers, particularly in the United States of America, oh, e-books are taking over. Look, growth rates, 4,000%. And then if you look at the real figures, that means we have 15% of the market. <laughs> uh, and elsewhere in the world, not so much. Uh, I love it when an ebook can augment the experience. When they, they do something electronically, the sound of the marketplace, the, the, the footnote, the explanation of what is that, 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 that name, push on it, boom, this is what the character is. Oh, it's that guy. So, particularly if you're reading, let's say, Game of Thrones and you're trying to keep in your mind the cast of thousands, <laughs> you know, if the ebook could augment that, that's cool because that's adding something to the story. But if you're just going to reproduce the, the printed thing, I want the printed thing. 
Because the printed thing left lying on the beach or on the seat on the bus or in the doctor's waiting room is what gets you your new readers. It can be passed down from a father to a son or a friend to a friend and say, look, this book is really cool. You should read this. You can't do that so easily with e-books because everything's lost in the shouting crowd. There's no way to pick them out. Yes, you can put free samples up and excerpts and everything, but everybody's doing that. And most of us navigate through the internet like blind, drunk drivers on a freeway we're not familiar with. <laughs> okay, so finding stuff a second time and deliberately as opposed to by accident um, can be a, a, a problem at times. I still want the look and feel, personally, of a book. I want to be able to pull out books that were written and published centuries before I was born and turn the pages and say, oh, my great-great-grandmother wrote in this, here in the margin. This was her book. I can never know her, but I can smell her perfume. And she loved this scene. Look how, many, look how it falls open at this scene. You know, and that adds something, too. I don't want to lose that. I don't, I don't mean I'm a Luddite. Yes, I have e-books and stuff, but I do not usually read on my e-book reader. However, if I was making a long trip on an airline, yes, I would want that, rather than the two suitcases yeah. full of books. <laughs> I, on the other hand, am a Luddite. I, I don't have an e-book on reader, and for two reasons. One, I, I just don't enjoy reading on a computerized screen that much, and I, I know that there's hopefully as good as paper now, but I, but I don't think they can. They are, really. And um, the other thing is I just still enjoy the physical thing and holding the book in my hands, even, though, even when I'm on an airplane and I have to carry the damn thing on the it's still worth it to me to do that. And the plus side is uh, they don't make you turn off the book when you're taking off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I can read through this stewardess telling me about how to buckle my seatbelt. <laughs> I, I believe that over the long haul, it's all going to be ebooks except for some kind of specialty items or collector's items, but not necessarily any, you know, anytime real soon. But, but I think that, you know, in a generation or two at least, that we're going to get there. Yeah, not only do I agree, but I think we've, we've only seen the very, very beginning. Mm -hmm. For example, now on the Audible books, you can, some of them you can sync with the book you're reading so that when you, you're listening to the book and then you go back to, to read the ebook, it picks up right where you stop listening. So they sync them together. And the other thing I see is a big change that's coming, and come, probably coming pretty fast, is that right now it's very hard to, trans, to get books translated into other languages except for the bigger books, the bigger titles, because the cost is prohibitive for the number of sales you're going to get and the noise that is the marketplace. And what's going to happen when e-readers are going to have good translation programs on them? And they're going to, in the very near future, have very good translation programs. Romans, they go the house. You know, right now, somebody in Australia, well, that's a bad example. <laughs> <laughs> they don't really speak English. But if somebody, in, if somebody in Germany wants my book, right now, they can get it in English. So they can have it shipped and pay $25 probably shipping to get a hardcover book shipped over there. Or they can get out their e-reader and download it because it's available worldwide in e-format e when it's released. And so what you're gonna, I think you're going to see more and more. Look, four years ago, I tracked this stuff. I was an accountant. 
Four years ago, 2% of my books were ebooks. Then I went to 19%, then I went to 40%. Now my backlist is about 65 to 70% e ebooks. That's the reality. You're, when I started, you guys remember this. Mm -hmm. You know, Mary, you're young. <laughs> when you other guys remember this, um, Walden Books had 2,000 stores and 1,200 B They're all gone. There are people now who are three hours from a bookstore. Well, I, don't, I don't think there's one in Indianapolis anymore. I think they're all gone. Mm -hmm. And that was another but that's another thing I was bringing up. With all the bookstores being gone, I mean, are we going to rely on the internet to get our hardback books? Is that where we're going to have to get them from? Because I don't see any of the bookstores coming back. I think independent bookstores are coming back. And I think that the game and hobby stores are doing pretty well again, which is really cool to see. Mm -hmm. I do want to move on to another question because we're running out of time. Go ahead. Well, yeah. actually, I wanted to add something to that. For, uh, in an aging population that we have in this country, and also people who are like me, I'm legally blind, I found it very difficult to find any science fiction or fantasy in large print if I did it was extremely expensive. With the advent of e-readers, you now have an audience who was not able to read your books mm -hmm. if, they are not, if they weren't recorded, they couldn't listen to them. You have those people who will be able to read e-books because of the print you want. And I think that that's an addition to your audience and it's a really great thing. It won't replace print books for people who want them, but it opened a world for me that I did not get to experience. <laughs> All right, a couple more questions. I'm going to check make sure. Okay, go ahead. Simple fact question. One of the joys of uh, shared world fiction is that you get to read about all of these characters from all these different authors, excluding characters you yourselves have written. Who's your favorite character to forgot about that somebody else? No. Don't no. no. <laughs> <laughs> but I used to I have forgotten I, I shall rephrase. If you could meet them, <laughs> Chris, that's the I have four children. Which one do you love the right. most? Right. That's what you're asking. Eddie's choice. Yeah. Does anybody want to answer that question? Not really. <laughs> now, if you say the question, what character would you like to see in this situation, regardless of who's writing them? Probably in the hands of their creator. Yeah. That would be a different thing. There are, I would love Let's to see. You would love to see. I would love to see Drizzt happy, smiling, and joking. No. I would love to see it. That's my sort of personal thing. I would love to read the that. The only way Chris would be laughing and joking is if he was standing on the ashes of Tremendously. 
And it would be, it, it's, like when you, it's like when you're doing an interview for a newspaper and they say, well, who's your favorite writer? And you realize that as soon as you say one name, you're going to say another, and then another, and then another. Yeah. And then when it comes out, you're going to realize, I forgot this person, this person, this person, this person. And they all know where I live. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way. And, and the other thing is, it's kind of a movement. You know? It, it, it depends on my mood. I mean, I, I don't think, especially in the rounds. Let me give the answer I gave to that question back in 1990. My favorite Realms character is that cool one I haven't met yet. Okay? Because it means there's going to be more new ones around the corner that we just haven't met yet. That's what. Awesome. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah. When you guys were at the summit, when you guys were brainstorming, had anything that hit the floor that you decided to pick up and put on the back burner for yourself as an individual book? Uh, I did. Another series. <laughs> I absolutely did, and, and that, that's why I'm now, I've got the next four books plotted out, pretty much. The <laughs> plots will change as I write the books, because they always do, but a lot of that was to, with, a lot of where I thought I wanted to go, came from what I was hearing other people saying the realm would happen in different parts of the realms. And I went, <laughs> I, can't, I won't play that. <laughs> so. um, I had, I'm, I'm working with characters that I, I have, I wrote two books about, and in both cases I, I had to kind of push out the sequel I had intended to write. Um, so I just was paying very careful attention to what happened in that particular area, and as soon as I had the simple of an idea, I jumped up and said, can I please do this? Um, here's my plan, and, and, and Ed, do you like this? And James, do you like this? And Nina, do you like this? Um, so uh, I have permission for that. And in a similar sense, you know, there's places, um, my characters are from Time Anther originally, obviously there are a lot of things about Time Anther that are going to change very drastically, and I, you know, look at that and go, oh my gosh, this story is going to be so good, um, you know, for another book down the line. Um, so yeah, those, those things that happen for other reasons, for, for necessities caused by other factors, um, and you kind of synthesize that with the, with the ideas and the characters that you had kind of floating around before, um, you pick them up and they turn into little books, hopefully, mm -hmm. when they're written. So this is going to turn into one of those situations like um, Bob just described, but Aaron just mentioned Nina, and Ed mentioned Fleetwood earlier before. I want to give a special nod of acknowledgement to Nina Hess and Fleetwood Robbins, who are the editors for all of these six books. Uh, Nina is editing Bob and Aaron and Troy. Fleetwood is editing Ed and Richard and Paul. Um, they're doing a great job. Uh, they have been an integral part of the whole uh, uh, summit process, and reviewing outlines as a team. Uh, the other member of my team, Matt Sermet, has also been involved in that. He's kind of the, the realm's continuity person who's, who's helping us keep everything. Nita team. managed to hide. She's not in that video. <laughs> if you watch that video and you... Oh, okay, yeah, okay. If you can see Fleetwood and Matt sitting beside us in one shot. You can see Nina next to me one time. Oh, yes. I just yeah. her. She's, but she's, got, she's kind of got her hair hat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's one of those sneaky editors that kind of yeah, yeah. the light smacks you upside the head. <laughs> Many she's like, I love this, but did you notice this massive gaping plot thing that you could probably have done better? Why are you so good at spotting those? <laughs> yeah, when I actually wrote, the first time I actually worked with Nina was with Gino. When Gino wrote The Stowaway. And... We kind of, I, I knew 
when she heard comments came in, because he had done most of the writing, she just buried him, which was awesome. <laughs> every first book author needs to be buried yes. and just bloody. And, and Gino came to me and he's like, all right, all right, all right. So I went to my notes and he said, yeah, they are identical to me. <laughs> this woman, she's awesome. <laughs> and then, then it just got so much better for both of them going through the rest of that series. She's just mean is tremendous. And Fleetwood is, I knew Fleetwood over the Delray days. I mean, Fleetwood came from Delray books. Yeah, they, they, for that, absolutely. <laughs> Here in my grubby little paws, two copies of the companions, and I don't want to leave this room with them. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> um, so as we were talking, I came up with uh, three questions of things that were mentioned kind of in passing over the course of the panel. So if you were paying very close attention, <laughs> you might remember. Um, well, I have three questions, but I'm only going to ask two of them unless nobody can answer one of them. So I'm going to need your help in spotting the first hand that goes up as I ask these questions. <clears throat> Number one. <laughs> All right, what's the answer? <laughs> okay, here's question number one. There's a noble woman in Troy's book who believes she is a chosen of... I think back here, right? I thought the guy in the black died first. That's, yeah. That was my book. Dark black shirt? Yeah, that's yeah. what I saw. Yeah. Gallant black shirt. Yes. Don't put your hand up. Okay, yeah. You're out. You're, you're out. Right. Okay. Um, okay. The character who appears both in Aaron's book and in Richard's book is named? Uh, <laughs> okay, so how picky do I want to be? Picker than that. I think yeah. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Okay, who is next? Does anybody know? Uh, <laughs> Blue shirt? Yeah. Stead? Stead? Yeah. <laughs> so and what's the third question? We all want to know. Uh, the third question I think was too easy. Richard's book has undead, pirates, and... Flunks? <laughs> but do you have pirate red wizards who are undead? Huh? Do you have pirate red wizards who are undead? I I do have red wizards who are undead. But are they pirates? But, uh, no, I have I have I have I have, I have, I have I have red wizards who are undead. And I have pirates who are undead, and I have red wizards and pirates who are not undead. But I think it's undead. You have all the characters. Right. And if you do, he gets to name it. All right. <laughs> I think we are, yeah, 5.58. So any last very brief words? Read it. It's going to be good. 